Mary Ramos, the music supervisor who for the past few decades has helped bring to cinema some of the most iconic musical moments and scores. This is Pop Culture Confidential, Masterclass Special. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Birro. Thank you for joining me for this very special edition of Pop Culture Confidential, taped live at the Göteborg Film Festival. I was very happy to interview a real legend in her field, music supervisor Mary Ramos, at her masterclass at the festival. From Pulp Fiction to Spotlight, for over 20 years, Mary Ramos has created the musical identity for some of the most important movies of the past few decades. How she finds and secures the music for the big directors she works with is pretty awesome. I was thinking that it's almost like an episode of Music CSI or something. She's a detective hunting down original compositions and writers and tracing their steps. And then her legal mind sets in, securing rights to make film history. Mary Ramos has worked with Alison Anders, Zach Braff, and she's a longtime collaborator of director Tom McCarthy, and she just paired him with composer Howard Shore for the amazing score on his new film Spotlight. But it's with Quentin Tarantino, for whom music has been such an integral part of his filmmaking, that Ramos has worked for almost most of his career, since Pulp Fiction. And she just now paired him with the legendary composer Ennio Morricone for the amazing Hateful Eight score, and that score was just nominated for an Oscar. But without further ado, let's listen to the interview. Taped live at the very cool concert hall Pustervik in Göteborg, this is the Masterclass with Mary Ramos. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And very, very cool that we're in. We can still smell the beer in a rock club. This was perfect like home. place I for felt you. like home, you know, coming in here this morning coffee and then walking in here and smelling beer from last night or whatever. So. But before we get into the details, I want to ask, do you live music? Could you like, what song would you come into? Oh, you know what? And I forgot to bring it with yeah. me. It's a clip of a, there's an artist called Bloodstone and they, they're um, a soul artist from the 70s and uh, they have a very obscure song, but it's called Mary and it's got the most awesome chorus. I'm going to play it at the, at the Dragon Awards, okay. but it's the chorus. But you're at the Boy Film Festival. You have to have Mary when Mary comes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, you know, it's, they, they did that song, Natural High, that was in Jackie Brown. And the song Mary kind of sounds a little like that, but the chorus is, Mary, you know. So that would that's be, that'd be what I'd walk out to. Well, we're going to get into the details of how you work, um, but... Really, just briefly, what is it you do so that people understand? What oh, yes. Okay. Um, I'm a f music supervisor, and I mostly work on films. I've done other media as well, but, but films are my love. Um, I handle all musical aspects of a film, basically. Um, so whether that is uh, helping a director come up with um, song choices, um, helping them uh, pick a composer, um, helping them create a temporary music track before they have a composer to help set the pace and, and uh, tone of, of the movie. Um, helping them, if there's a camera, if there's a, someone singing on camera, I'll help set up the pre-recording session. And uh, if, as many times is the case, if they cast an actor who is not a singer and who does not know how to hold a guitar, <laughs> um, I will uh, hold rock school and um, 
and uh, have, you know, however long we've got, I'll take a week. And you have some cool people doing rock stars. Oh, Nancy yeah. Wilson. Right? Nancy Wilson from Heart. Beautiful, beautiful Nancy Wilson. She um, uh, hosted my rock school for a movie called um, P.S. I Love You, where Gerard Butler uh, had to play guitar and, and uh, sing on camera. And so she, you know, taught him how to hold the... Actually, that's not the one. He was pretty familiar with okay. it. But there was another, another film where... Uh, they cast a gorgeous actor, um, and he was a singer, but he wasn't necessarily a, the kind of singer that they wanted, and he'd never played guitar before, so um, I hired um, a couple of uh, recording artists to teach him literally how to put the guitar strap on and off so that it was natural, you know, um, that's kind of one of my biggest pet peeves is when you watch a movie and, the, and they are supposed to be musicians and they don't, you know, they just haven't taken time to get used to the, the uh, instrument. Right. So anyways, that's what I'll do. Well, we'll get into more details. I thought we'd start from the beginning and show a clip from um, that we can talk about. Sure. From, your uh, from Pulp Fiction, this is Urge Overkill's Neil Diamond cover, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Yes, it's Let's a short little yeah. piece of it. Girl, you'll be a woman soon. Can. We never get tired of putting it down And I never know when I come around What I'm gonna find Don't let them make up your mind Don't you know, girl You'll be a One drink and that's it Don't be rude Drink your drink But do it quickly Say goodnight and go home. <laughs> so that was from Pulp Fiction, one of the incredible scenes. Mm -hmm. What is the story? So that's not Neil Diamond. That's a cover. What's the story? That's Urge Overkill. Well, the interesting story about that one is, I mean, a lot of the times, um, because I, I, what I forgot to mention was, uh, I'm the kind of music supervisor I am is sort of full service. I also do my own music clearances because for me, if I am going to help a director tell their story with music, I want to make sure that they can keep that particular music in the picture. And basically, Quentin, studios what? are lazy. He wants a particular song, you want a particular song, the studios will try to clear it, and like, nah. That well, yeah, if they're not passionate about the choice, then they'll just come back and say, well, it, it was, you know, $100,000, and <laughs> then we'll be done with it. Um, so the reason why he works, and lots of people work with you, is you'll go full. You'll take yeah, it all. Yeah, I won't, I won't, won't rest until I get it. So that in, in the particular case of this song, um, Neil Diamond wrote this song, and, uh, you know, we initially went to his music publisher to get the rights for it before the scene was shot, and uh, we were denied uh, the rights to use it. It was, uh, they didn't like the scene, they didn't think she it was enough money. She snorts heroin at the end. Yes, at the end of it, uh, sorry, and that's the part we should have shown. Uh, she snorts heroin and overdoses um, at the end of the scene, and the music is still playing. So um, uh, they denied the use, and so... Uh, rather than tell Quentin he couldn't have this 
song, um, I wrote a very passionate letter to Neil Diamond. And uh, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was something about, you know, even though drugs are done in this scene, it does it in no way glorifies the use of drugs. In fact, she nearly dies from her folly. So it's a very, you know, <laughs> and... It's um, actually anti-drug. It is, it's actually <laughs> anti-drug. So, uh, and uh, he, he let us use the song. Does that um, happen often that the publishers, like, we don't like the violence, we don't like, the, I mean... Yes, as a matter of fact, that's a lot of what I do is um, is appealing to um, rights holders to allow us to use music. There's a, another clip later on that we have for, and it often comes in, I mean, you would be surprised the kinds of things that, uh, you know, get turned down. Uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's a sex scene, if it's a particular, you know, type of violent scene or something. I want to talk a little bit about Tarantino. How did you start working with him? Um, I met Quentin, and he's the reason I'm a music supervisor, basically. I didn't even know this was a job. Um, and it's not a very, I mean, it, people say, oh, what kind of school should I go to to learn how to music supervise? And I, I, I don't have a really good answer for that because I kind of fell into this job. Um, I was friends with an actor, Tim Roth. He was one of my pals, and I, um, I met Quentin through Tim when they were working together on Reservoir Dogs. And we just kind of hit it off talking about music and And at the time, there was a music supervisor working on Reservoir Dogs, and she needed someone to work for mm -hmm. her, and I needed a job, so that it worked out wonderfully. What's his process? Does he know the songs he wants in the script when he comes to you, or do you guys collaborate on which ones? Quentin, every director is different. Every director tells a story differently, and I've, you know, and Quentin is the type of director, the kind of stories he wants to tell often have um, specific clothing, specific um, visuals, specific music. I mean, that's the kind of story he likes to tell. Um, so yes, a lot of times when he is uh, beginning writing a, a script, for instance, for Jackie Brown, he'll go into his record room in his house. He has a record room that's like set up like a record store with vinyl in different sections. And he'll go to his R&B section, you know, and start listening to R&B to come up with the vibe and soul of the story. And what I will do is I mean, it's, sometimes it's really kind of fun because I'll go in and uh, sit down and he'll like tell me the story and then stop and, and play a piece of music and, you know, let it play. And then he'll continue the story and switch albums and stuff. So that's a lot of times how we'll start. That is why I have such a passion to make sure that he gets his vision, the, the movie that's in his head. I want to make sure that he can, can, can make the movie that's in his head. I want you guys to see the movie that's in his head rather than something that had to be a compromise that he couldn't get. Um, so there's that. But if also I've been, uh, I've been helpful in uh, choosing music and you know, filling in the blanks where he has set the palette for things and being able to... And other directors don't have any idea what they want really. Yes. And how do you work with them? Well, that's kind of fun. I mean, that actually gets, uh, the, you know... Uh, fun too when uh, a director starts a project without an idea of music um, then I'm able to help them come to the decision. The way I approach the job is um, film is a director's medium and I, I, I want to support the director and help them tell their story um, so I'll help them come to um, come to a choice you know so uh, and if it's a very uh, broad target to hit then I'll start there I'll uh, Take, for instance, a scene and start with five different choices in very different styles that I've tried to picture, that work to picture, and show it to them so that we, they can help hone in on their style and their choice. 
it's more organic that way, and I really uh, I, I enjoy working that way with directors. So it's kind of, you know. I want to show a new clip, Tarantino, because this one I think illustrates how you work as a detective I was talking about, how you're in there finding <gasps> rights from things that people don't even think right. are able to be found anymore. So this is from Jackie Brown. It's Roy Ayers, Vitrona's theme. Excuse me? My wife thinks she left a bag of beach towels in the fitting room. Yeah, I think they're there. Go get them. There's nobody in there. Thanks. Last stop. What's the story behind that one? Okay, and that was, um, Jackie Brown was one of the first times Quentin used um, a score from another movie. And uh, the vibe of Jackie Brown was soul and R&B, but it also was black exploitation style. Um, and so when we were on the, and this is the other thing, is that Quentin likes to make last minute decisions too, which makes my life <laughs> incredibly interesting. Um, so we were on the mixing Not stage. Not surprising. <laughs> We were on the mixing stage for Jackie Brown, and he thought, you know what, because that scene didn't have any music. And he thought, you know what, I want to put some music here. And he had been listening to Jack, the, the, the soundtrack to Coffee, which is a lovely score by Roy Ayers. Um, cool score. And uh, he wanted to use this piece of music, as is the case. You know, I'll go and try and get the rights from the publisher. And the publisher said, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> no? Why? And they said, because there's another writer on this piece we haven't been able to find it, and we don't, we don't have any current information on this rider. Last information we had was, like, from the 70s in, uh, you know, Manhattan. So I, I can't take no for an answer, especially when it's this kind of a situation. So I started, and this was in 1996, before we really had Google, and we had, you know, internet searches. So I used the phone book <laughs> to... Last known address was Manhattan, New York City. I knew he was a jazz musician. Uh, I knew his name was Harry Whitaker, and he was in Royer's band. So I started calling all the jazz company, all the jazz uh, clubs in Manhattan and New York City, and uh, that I could find. And I found him on uh, like maybe the fifth or sixth club I called, and they said, "Oh yeah, Harry's coming in tomorrow night." <laughs> I said, "I don't have his phone number. Please have him call me immediately." You know, so with like seconds to spare, I was able to find him, get his approval to use the song, hook him back up actually with his publishing company, oh, really? so that he could start getting revenue. Um, so that and that's you're kind of helping everyone there. I think. Yeah, I mean, I've often I've often thought, you know, the way that Quentin uses actors that ha whose careers get kind of revived by his use of him in the movies in the same the music, way it's yeah. sort of in the, mu the the music as well so and you started yourself in a punk band you weren't <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. if you were you've still... never heard of us so. <laughs> what was it called 
<laughs> it was called Invisible Order. It was the 80s, so... <laughs> Not everyone will Google Invisible Order. <laughs> no. um, but if you had that band today and you wanted to get in touch with Mary Ramus, music supervisor, and get your song into a movie, what would you recommend? Um, the one thing that I've often said to bands starting out is... Um, I know it sounds... It sounds uh, kind of unoriginal, but to get the attention of music supervisors, uh, a lot of times it's good to do a cover of a well-known song and do an original cover, do a cool, a cool uh, version of it. Because a lot of times when supervisors are looking some for something for an ad or for a television show, we, they need to find something that's familiar yet has a spin on it, has a new spin on it. And so we'll look for, you know, cover songs. And that's a good way to like sort of throw your bait into the water um, to have us uh, find your band and start listening to your original music as well. Um, that's one way. And what, there do you are, have an example of a good cover from a band that you've... Uh, yeah, there was one that I, there was one that I used in a movie, a, a horror, well, it was a thriller um, called A Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I used a cover of... Um, Black Hole Sun, um, that was done by a female, and it was a sort of an ethereal female vocal um, version of it. Uh, anyways, so that was a one example. Oh, cool. So that's what you should. But covers, I mean, that must cost something as well. I mean, it costs something to yeah. license them, yes. Right, yeah. But I mean, it's an introduction, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a bait kind of for getting people to notice your band. That's you know. So that's that's what I was. I know that you were one of the wor first people to find or use John Legend. Oh yeah. yeah. What's the story behind? Oh my God! And I even told him, "Oh yeah, a really nice voice." Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, John Legend. Um, I was working on a movie called Be Cool uh, with a director, um, F. Gary Gray, and it was a movie um, that was about the music industry, um, kind of, the, and it was you know it was a, it was a farce, but it was. Um, and one of the storylines was John Travolta's character uh, finds uh, a, a young singer who's also a songwriter, and she's got this original style. And, um, and so one of the challenges was finding... And, of course, you know, you have a scene in the script where, you know, all the characters are listening to this girl sing, and it's the most amazing song ever. So no pressure, right? I mean, when you write a, a, a scene like that in a script, you really have to find, you know, somebody... An amazing piece of music. So um, I sought out the help of Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas and from John Legend, and they wrote a, a really cool ballad um, for this girl to sing called Believer. And it was before John Legend had, you know, broken out into his solo career. He'd done, you know, he'd worked a little bit with Kanye, but. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. You, you're picking them and you know helping both sides, both the movies with their music and the artists. Yeah. To grow. Yeah. Um, I want to go to a new clip because this one you have said is your most challenging project. So I'm interested in hearing why. It's from mm. Kill Bill, Santa Esmeralda. Don't let me be misunderstood. I love that scene. Yeah. 
And what I can say is, um, uh, can you imagine that scene without that song? No. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it almost didn't happen. That song was absolutely unclearable. It, it, they were in a stalemate. The, the, the band was in a stalemate with uh, a, a long-standing, like over 10 years long, um, legal battle over something to do with um, the, the rights to the song. And, um, and the lead singer was the key to, to making that all happen. And it was Leroy Gomez and, the, uh, and Santa Esmeralda I had to find Leroy Gomez somehow. I mean, the publisher, again, the publisher said, no, you can't have it. And the record company said, no, don't even pursue this. And uh, like, you don't tell me that. So I, I uh, started, and this I did have the uh, very rudimentary internet searches. So I started with um, phone directories. I started with a copyright search, last known address. Um, I, and then I started searching obituaries. And, uh, and obituaries. Gomez, yeah, yeah, that's how I found him. I mean, really? uh, Gomez is a, you know, um, is, a, is a good name to start with because there's not a ton. But, and I knew it was in the Massachusetts area. So I kind of tracked it down through an a obituary and I found his father's obituary and I tracked down his mother. And his mother gave me Leroy's. He had since moved to France, and so she gave me his cell phone number in France. So I called him up out of the blue and helped him work out a solution to their um, legal uh, battle. And uh, he was he and Leroy and his wife were my dates to the Kill Bill Volume 1 premiere. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah. He, I saw him, got to, he got to meet Lucy Liu and say, you're <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about that, because you're sort of a both right brain and left brain person. I mean, either you, some people are either creative or into the sort of whole difficult rights clearance thing. Um, but what is the most difficult rights you ever cleared or most expensive? Oh, the most expensive. That's kind of a and hard And how one. much is it? I have no idea what... Oh, I was going to say, we were, okay, we were talking about this. I worked on a movie, well, I was the music coordinator on a movie called Reality Bites. Um, ben Stiller directed it. And they, he wanted a character to semi-sing um, the first four notes of the Dragnet television theme song, which is, you know, it's dun, 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 four notes. Um, and this was in 1994. So this is 1994 dollars. That those four notes were going to cost $12,000 for, for somebody to just do that. So, and now, of course, it's probably way more expensive. So that's just an indication of, of what music rights are. There's two different, two different things, obviously, you have to pay for when you, you know, want to license a song. If you just want a character to sing it and you never hear the recording, then you just clear the composition rights, the sync rights. Um, but if you want to use both the, the composition and the master recording, then you have to go to the record company and clear the master rights. So there's two sides to pay for, and oftentimes they, you know, they complete that, for a very large sum. And is that paid for in perpetuity, forever? Yes. Um, ideally, especially for films, I, I clear things for worldwide in perpetuity rights in all media, and including hereafter devised media, because... You never know. I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years, and video cassettes turned into, you know, I mean, <laughs> makes me sound incredibly old. But, you know, you do have to be prepared for future media. Right. For, you know. But talking about that, how has the industry trained? You've been doing this for over 20 years. And, mm. I mean, just in terms of what's happened with the Internet and iTunes, and, and, and how has it changed for you? Is it better or is it worse? Well, it's a little bit of both, actually. <laughs> um, one thing that's better is it's made independent music more available, more readily available. We all, you know, 
oh, I think everybody here has playlists of things that we know that we're the only ones that have it, <laughs> you know, and, and we found it through, you know, I think that's amazing and that's um, kind of special about what's happened. But one thing that obviously, I mean, everybody talks about it is um, I think digital uh, music doesn't have the same sound for sure. I mean, it's kind of... Um, but it also, I mean, I remember when iTunes started and um, I wish I had had a voice at the time because mm -hmm. I, the, uh, I think they should have kept it album only. I think it's killed the album, which kind of sucks because I used to love having an album and finding the B-side and playing the B-side. And that's right. often, I mean, we wouldn't have a Quentin Tarantino if you didn't have albums and have B-sides. So... It's a little bit of that. I mean, I have children now who don't, you know, they who only know song. one song yeah. by an artist. And they're, they're my kids, and they shouldn't be like that, but, <laughs> but they've been taught by society to, you know, are, culture to... Are you still a vinyl person? Your yes, house I, with vinyl? yes, I am still a vinyl person. And as a matter of fact, well, uh, for The Hateful Eight, one thing that we very much focused on first was releasing a vinyl uh, album. We, went, we worked with Jack White's record label, um, Third Man, and put out a vinyl compilation of the, of the score and the music in the film. And, um, and then we also worked with Decca um, to put out vinyl. Vinyl was incredibly important uh, for this particular soundtrack release. But how many songs do you have on your iTunes? Oh my God! It's you know? I have and also hard, external hard drives. I've had and that's digital music. Yeah. I've lost thousands of songs when I've you know unfortunately dropped my hard drive or something. So the number is kind of it's I have a lot. I have a lot of music and it's weird stuff too. It's so funny if you like want me to you know show you my playlist. I was telling you I have like yodeling. I have, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I have things that I've used for various projects. So it's all in there. And if you do a shuffle of my playlist, it's, you'll get some polka. You'll get, you know, so. Let's go to a new clip. Let's go to Django Unchained, which is interesting because this is when sort of Quinton changed yes. a little bit how he initially always wanted to work. And this is Ennio Morricone. Elisa, isn't it? Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ancora qui. Ancora qui. Ancora tu. <laughs> so we're going to talk a lot about Morricone at the end for Hateful Eight, but tell us a little bit about this, how this got into the picture. This movie was, this movie was special in that, um, you know, Quentin, you know, Quentin sees movies in his head before he starts writing them, and a lot of times that has to do with music, and um, this was the first opportunity that I had to um, have original songs written for him, and um, it started with... Because um, he didn't want that. No, he's he never been... Because he doesn't... I mean, he wants to get used to something and see it in his head to, you know... Um, it's, so it started with um, Anthony Hamilton and Elena Boynton. They wrote a song for the movie 
inspired by this the the storyline um the love story and the revenge story and um and uh, they wrote a a gorgeous song called freedom and i just i gave it to him on a cassette i gave it to quentin and uh i didn't hear anything didn't hear anything didn't hear anything and then i i like a couple of weeks later he invited me in and was like you know showed me this scene where he was thinking of using it and I knew that it cracked open. It was gorgeous the way he used it. Um, and so I started um, reaching out to songwriters and artists to see if there were, you know, anybody else, anybody else, if it's the door's open. <laughs> so um, one of the songs that we got was from John Legend and he was also inspired by the story. He wrote an incredible, we have a, a picture, we have a, a clip of that as well, you know, and, and, the other thing that we do is Quentin and I work on work in cassettes, cassette tapes. Um, we don't. He doesn't. He's not a digital guy. He won't listen to a link. He won't go to a website. Um, and he also won't. I mean, if you put it on a CD, sometimes it'll just get lost. <laughs> but cassettes, that's how you know he prefers to hear things. So uh, I asked John Legend to put a to find a cassette. <laughs> you know, uh, Quentin doesn't make things easy, doesn't he? <laughs> so. Uh, so he did. So John put it on a cassette and sent it to him, and, and with a handwritten note, and fell, Quentin fell in love with it. So there was that, and then, and then I reached out to uh, Ennio's, uh, my connection to Ennio, and this was a song that uh, they sent in, uh, and it's a gorgeous use in the picture. I mean, I believe the lyrics have something to do with "I'm still here," mm -hmm. and um, this is the scene. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, but this is. I don't want to ruin it for you, but this is a scene where um, she's reunited with um, with Django. It's gorgeous music, and it's a gorgeous use. That beginning when they're, you know, almost choreographed to it. So, and Ennio is a very important, and we'll get back to that because that collaboration really grew for yeah. you. But I think we're going to move on to a new clip right away from um, Inglorious Bastards, which is a very interesting oh, piece yeah. of music. The first little clip is just a Swedish connection, which I thought was on Sara Leander. And um, the next one, The Man with the Big Sombrero, you can tell us why that is okay. interesting in that one. Hello, you lieben. Setz euch schon mal. Ich bin gleich bei euch. Ich verabschiede mich nur noch von meinen fünf neuen Freunden hier. Ich bitte Sie, Frau von Hammersmark, bitte lassen Sie sich Zeit. Amüsieren Sie sich, wir warten hier auf Sie. Erik, mon chéri, das sind die Freunde, auf die ich gewartet habe. Bitte gib ihnen alles, was Sie möchten. Frau von Hammersmark, Ihr Wunsch ist mir Befehl. Meine Herren, wie es aussieht, geht die Runde auf das Fräulein. Was hätten Sie denn gern? Whisky. Zwei Whisky. Drei Whisky. Drei Whisky, gern. Ich wünsche Ihnen noch einen wunderschönen guten Abend. Ich bedanke mich. Ja, danke. Ihre Karte, Ihre Karte. Ja, stimmt. Wollen wir mal sehen? Genghis Khan? Das hätte ich nie erraten. Aber natürlich, Sie doch. Mein Liebling. Wie geht es dir? Moment. So that's a movie about the third, right? And yeah, you used mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, those pieces were actually those pieces were interesting because there was another scene in the movie that had to be 
cut for various reasons, but um, I think it was just for time. But uh, there was a scene where Goebbels comes to uh, the the film, uh, the cinema, and he wants to check it out before he approves it. And so he gives her a list of movies that he wants to see, and they're all screwball comedies. So um, that were uh, goofy comedies. Um, and so this, there would be a scene where he's sitting there alone in the theater, this awful, stern person watching this, you know, you know, the, this screwball comedy and, um, and, and it'd be one after the other. And that's why these songs were important in the beginning. Um, so the man with the big sombrero is a song that was from a 1930s movie called Hey Diddle Diddle. And, um, and rather than, and it's a funny song in English, um, you know, suggestive song and hokey, you know, um, and so w w to make it fit into the scenario, we had it translated into French and had a singer, um, you know, uh, do a 1930s impression uh, of it and recorded it specifically for the film. And since we cut that scene, we still ended up using it in the La Louisiane um, bar, along with the Zara Leander, Zara Leander. Mm -hmm. and... Uh, Ich wollte, ich bin ein Huhn, something like that. That's well, Sarah Lander, of course, was big at the time, but yes. that movie you also used David Bowie, Cat mm -hmm. People First, so which is sort of not from the time, which I think is interesting with you and Quentin, that you will take songs that are not appropriate it for their bold. time, so to speak. I yeah. mean, and I think one of the things, obviously, that makes him so unique is his bold use of music. Um, he won't edit a song and he won't cramp force a song into a scene he will the song is you know allowed to breathe and he'll often play the entire song as in Jackie Brown you know I mean um and I think that's kind of unique about him and I think the bold use of and uh, yes absolutely use David Bowie cat people it fit amazingly um and he'll edit the scene to it um so I think those are uh earmarks of of his his work too. I mean, to go back to this, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but to go back to um, uh, Django Unchained, one of the artists that sent in an original song was Frank Ocean. Amazing songwriter, singer, Frank Ocean, soul singer. Um, he sent in a song and it was called Wise Man and it was just gorgeous. Um, but it, it didn't fit in the movie. There wasn't a scene that was, that was right for it. And so rather than take this big name, this a new song that, you know, would have been a huge thing for the movie and just find some place to, you know, cram it in, Quentin said, no, I, I want to respect this man's work. I don't want to, you know, um, I don't want to just Miss use it for uh, that purpose. And I thought that was, I mean, I think that's actually pretty special too about uh, he respects the work. So. And now we're going to get a little bit into composers and scoring, mm. um, which is different from this, what we've been talking about with particular songs. Talk a little bit about how you work finding, a pairing a composer with a director. Mm. Um, God, that's a long, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other seminar we could talk about. But that is one thing that I do too. Um, a lot of times, and it sounds ridiculous, but a lot of times uh, composers and directors need help communicating um, uh, because time is short and you know sometimes directors aren't uh, used to speaking with musicians and you know I'm gonna it's and 
and the musician isn't used to speaking to directors. So I kind of am allow I allow myself to be there to help. Um, so you get shorthand the first. You'll, you'll get we'll the give the, the script. Well, yeah, we'll give the script to the composers first. Mm -hmm. um, and you choose a few composers that you think are right that you'll send the script. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I'll act as if a casting director, basically, for composers. So because I know all of the composer agents and I know a lot of the composers' work, and I keep abreast of new composers. And um, and it's also a it's also a, a, a matchmaking kind of session because you don't want to put someone who's very um, Who's you know you don't want to put someone who's di difficult with a director that you know is new and doesn't know how to handle someone difficult. You just need to be able to make sure that they're simpatico and and uh, that the music is right. And so one thing that I'll do with a director when I first come on is help come up with the temp temporary track and the vibe of like what the the. Uh, and how do you do that temporary track? Do you have someone? A lot of times I'll use a music editor. I'll work with a music editor. They are. The good ones are worth their weight in gold because they know and they respect music and they know how to make uh, score music work and songs work to picture. Um, because it, when you don't have the luxury of cutting your your film to the song, when the film is already edited and you're adding music afterwards, then you have a, a music editor that helps. Um, so I'll do that mm -hmm. and uh, use some of my... I have a ton of score that I'll... Use and it just helps. It helps uh, set the mood and the pace, and the tone and the you know. It helps them hone down and it helps them to articulate too um, what they're looking for. And the one that you've done, uh, Tom McCarthy's new movie Spotlight, which is about the, um, the the Boston Globe's investigation into the Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal, and it's journalist, it's investigation, it's sort of '70s vibe um, newsroom. Talk a little. What were you looking for? Why did it become Howard Shore? Before we listen to the clip, so we know what we're listening for. That was a large casting section session, actually. Um, uh, because at the beginning, Tom, the director, thought he wanted something that was more along the lines of um, Trent Reznor, um, something that was more um, mood-oriented rather than uh, melody. Um, and well, when we, you see the clip, but Trent Reznor just doesn't. That uh, would be weird. Well, I mean, it would have been a different kind of a, mm. a different kind of a vibe. And the more the more we looked at it, and the more we tried different music on, the more we became. Uh, um, interested in following the energies of the various um, uh, characters. Mike Resendiz is a major. Is, is Mark Ruffalo's character has this kind of energy that you you know um, mm. borrow from in the music. Um, and we also wanted to have sort of a we really because it was the story about the, the investigation. We wanted it to have sort of a throwback feel, a '70s feel. It's hard to explain why it was sort of a you know, all the president's men reference. Well, that or genre, the journalist genre, feels very... And, of course, this is legacy journalism, even though it was 2001. Yes. It's more of a newsroom than what you would find today. Yes. So that is legacy journalism was our was our catch mm -hmm. phrase for what we were looking for and, and, and how to encompass that in music. And so Howard Shore really... Uh, and, and that's another thing. I won't just go to the to the composer agencies and ask them... Um, for you know a reel, I will ask for specific clips. So I'll go through my own um, uh, list of what the composers have done and pick what I think 
is going to mean something to the director. Because if I left it up to the composer agents, they would have their assistants put together the latest reel, and it would not be specific to the project. Do you so, remember what Howard Shore movie or movies you I can't remember shown? exactly because there were some obscure ones. I, I focused mainly on his piano um, lead because that was something that I, I noticed that Tom responded to. Piano seemed to be uh, a, a lead instrument that he wanted to um, utilize. So I, I gathered a lot of that because it was important for the score not only to be um, evocative, but uh, to stay out of the way a lot of the times. It needed to set the pace and the tone, but it could not be bland in any way. So we needed to Let's really... Let's listen to Spotlight and then... Oh, yeah. On the other side, we'll Are see. these the clips? Yes, now okay. the spotlight. You, you chose the one. <laughs> there is a... You haven't seen it yet, and I, I'll only show you a tiny little piece, but there were a lot of montages in this movie of investigation. And um, this was a couple of different ways that we approached this scene. The first one is the very... is is the first piece that we received from the, the composer, from the composer. The second one is an attempt to bring it back around to the, the overlying theme that we created. And then the third one is, uh, was adding more um, energy and more of that kind of urgency to the theme once we'd honed down what it was. I just wanted to show you kind of one way of how we go through things. Hi there, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, I'm with the Boston Globe. I was just looking for a gentleman by the name of Matthew Walsh. Uh, no, he's not. Hi, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer from the Boston Globe. Yeah, what do you want? I'd like to speak with Thomas Kennedy. He doesn't live here anymore. Do you know where he lives? Sir, I'd just like to ask a few. Uh, Sasha Pfeiffer. Hi. Thank you. Anything else you can recall? No, but I got a question. They should kill This is the first uh, version. We didn't end up using that one. I'm really disappointed it's not Oscar nominated. Yeah. This is second one is just a, is a different melody. Um, uh, and it's getting back to a theme that we used earlier on in the picture. Um, so here's this one. Hi there, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. I'm with the Boston Globe. I was just looking for a gentleman by the name of Matthew Walsh. Uh, no, he's not. speak with Thomas Kennedy? He doesn't live here anymore. Do you know where he lives? Sir, I'd just like to ask a few... Uh, Sasha Pfeiffer, Boston Hello. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Anything else you can recall? No, but I got a cousin in Quincy. She saw him in the street a few years later. The bishop came over the house. So that was the... That was us, our attempt at turning it around to a, th a theme that we wanted to get more, uh, we, wanted, we felt it had more pathos and more, um, uh, it, meant it, it helped the scene more. Um, but the last one is our, the final that we did and we, we, we added more um, energy to this section. This was more ominous, sort of that something was. Yeah, a little bit more, yeah. well it's the, invest yeah, it's the investigation and it's the second one right. that in the picture when you finally see it. 
Hi there, I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, I'm with the Boston Globe. I was just looking for a gentleman by the name of Matthew Walsh. Uh, no, he's not. So we added that counter melody and it and it really made the scene it really made this montage uh work the best for the director so um that's just an example of you know how we work with score as well so music supervision we work with songs but we also help work with score when we because it's i you know it's important <laughs> it's yeah important for the, but the this way. one as i was saying i mean the whole i remember when i saw it the first time it's it's just it's perfect because like the script it doesn't do anything too much and but it's still there and it's still giving um a certain vibe that yeah. you don't even know that you don't even it's really a good uh, yeah i'm i'm glad you said that it's that's a disappointing that it yes. wasn't up for an us <laughs> well yeah because i really do feel like and howard's won several oscars yeah, I mean, I mean, you know um but it I, i really feel like he did an amazing job on this movie and um well sometimes it's easier to see the ones that are really big yeah exactly. the scores that are really big and these ones that are in, in but now let's get to one that's not a disappointment because it is oscar nominated yes. <clears throat> and i don't know if people understand what a big deal it is that you got Ennio Morricone, age 87, to do the entire the score for Hateful Eight. The maestro, yes. And that this was quite a deal to get him and that you were actually smuggling cassette tapes almost. Tell us how you got <laughs> him to work on this. Well, <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with the, with the, the backstory of the Hateful Eight, but um, w w you know, a couple of years before we went into pre-production, um, the script was leaked and uh, Quentin was very disappointed by the fact that the script was leaked. He felt betrayed and it was really a big deal. And, um, and he, for a long time, he wasn't going to make the movie because he was upset and he wanted to move on. Um, but when he decided to make the movie again, um, I brought up, I mean, I, I, it, you couldn't even have a copy of the script. You had to go to his house and read it. And then he wouldn't even let you read the last chapter. So, <laughs> um, One of the first things that we had talked about that I brought up was, this might be a great time to work with the maestro. Um, Quentin's never worked with a composer before, really. He worked with the RZA, and he's worked with Robert Rodriguez, but they weren't really, it wasn't really like collaborating with a composer, giving his baby over to, you know, a composer to create new music for it, which was a, it's a, it was a, a risky thing for him to do, and he, that's not something he's used to doing or comfortable with doing. Um, So it was a lot of, a lot of <laughs> my saying, you don't have to use it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you it just, just, but he must have loved the idea of it being in you. Oh, my, absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely. But, um, it, it was a lot of, you know, um, coaxing and, and, and convincing and, you know, I mean, he wanted to do it, but it was, you know, it's a, and how did Enyo feel about it? Well, um, I, and the other thing is it was, it had to be so top secret. So I had to use a close friend of mine and Tim Roth's, um, who lived in Milan, who's a translator because I knew she was in the family and she would never 
you know, let's Tim Roth has really anywhere. done a lot for. He really has. <laughs> Tim's like deep in my heart. Um, but uh, yeah, I, got, I actually got married at Tim's wife's okay. farm. <laughs> well, next time, Tim will invite Tim Roth also. Yeah, lovely. Okay, so um, but I, so I had the script translated by family basically, and then had the script, the translated script without the final um, chapter, by the way, Just even more secrecy. And then had it sent to Filippo Sugar and uh, Katerina Caselli, who are uh, who I worked with on Encore Qui, and who were close personal friends of the maestro. They hand delivered the script to the maestro and his wife. Ennio read it and was unconvinced because he, he thought it was a western, and he did not want to do a western score. He didn't want to go backwards. Um, and his wife read it. And she said, no, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> you have to do it. So um, there came time for Quentin, Quentin came to visit uh, the Donatelli Awards. He was in um, Italy for the Donatelli Awards. And we arranged a meeting for the two of them. And I wish I could have been there. I know everyone wishes they could have been there. It was a fly on the wall just to see how the two of them, because they'd met before, but never had a chance to like sit and just, you know. Um, so they talked about the script. They talked about the, the 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 fact that it's not necessarily a western. It's more of a thriller. It's more of you know. They talked about Ennio's work in his uh, in other genres, um, particularly his thriller genre. And there and the thing. And Ennio actually gave Quentin his own personal vinyl copy of the Thing soundtrack <laughs> because there are several pieces on that soundtrack that were not eventually used in the picture. They were composed for the movie but never used. And so we used a couple of those in the picture too. Um, so they had this wonderful simpatico meeting, and and Ennio told him at that meeting that when he read the script, a piece of music came to his mind from the meeting. From the well, from the from he told him at the meeting that a piece of music came to his mind from reading the okay, script, right, right. And it was a piece of music that um, uh, depicted the stage, the movement of the stagecoach, the forward mo movement, and um, and also had a sense of the ominous um, uh, goings on that were going. Can to we happen. listen to? A little bit? Yeah, that. this is the Hateful Eight. amazing what was quentin's reaction that was that i got to see because this was another interesting thing quentin hadn't heard a thing um before going to prague and being in the recording studio with the maestro and the orchestra recording the score for the very first time so he hadn't heard anything um and I was there when he got to hear the first, th this first part. Um, it didn't have all the pieces to it even. It was just the strings and some of the percussion. Um, and he was, he was like a kid. He was just like, I mean, it was very cool. He was completely, and all, any fears that he may have had were, were gone. Gone. <laughs> Which was, you know, I mean, it sounds like a pat answer, but to see it, was pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have a little part in that Oscars. I'm pretty sure it'll be 
that's really happening. I really hope so. I mean, I awards are awards for art are, you know, I, I have an opinion about that, but. Mm. <laughs> but for this I, I think case. for this particular thing, I think for this for this particular composer at this particular age, who's never been awarded an Academy Award for his um, for his score uh, for his scores, he's gone, gotten an honor. One of the times you can say he's someone's due. Absolutely, right. and it would be a really amazing moment. I think I've gone over time, but I just I have to ask you the last question: What would be the total dream project for you? The director. Oh, I forgot the about this. You know, I, I, it's a hard one to answer because every, every director. I mean, I've worked with so many different directors, and every director's project has been like a challenge and interesting. And I've always found something interesting about it, even movies that nobody's seen. <laughs> I've found really fun things about it. So, um, I mean, and there's so many directors that I, you know, think would have been interesting to work with. Mm. But what? Bergman, it would have been interesting. Yeah. But um, I think uh, um, I love Baz Luhrmann. I think he's, I and mean, he has an amazing team. I would never, you know, but. I, that would I, be it's amazing. It's hard to, yeah. A musical would be fun. Mm -hmm. um, an avant-garde musical would be pretty fun. Phantom of the Paradise, I'd love to do something like that again. <laughs> but, you know, so I. I'm well, thank you so much, Mary. I know you're presenting um, Spotlight. Right here at oh, the festival. Yeah. If you guys want to hear more about the music, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a, yeah, it's a wonderful movie. It's a very wonderful movie. It's a, uh, it's well done and important. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, for thank this. you for having me. This thank was you. <laughs> thank you so much to Mary Ramis and good luck at the Oscars. And thank you to Yotebor Film Festival for having Pop Culture Confidential. And thank you for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture and check out the homepage PopCultureConfidential.com where we're busy making some changes. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but say, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, <laughs> maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.